This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with people who see possibilities that compel them to go against the status quo, but who sometimes struggle to do so because of the noise and norms of the world. I call them Sensitive Rebels, and we'll discuss the challenges, successes, and lessons from their journeys as they keep moving forward in their quest to make a difference in the world. Hey, Sensitive Rebel. Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn is a survivor. Well, actually, she's really a lot more than that, as you're going to come to learn. Her story is dramatic and unique, as is how she's used that experience to support and serve others. Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn is a professor in the School of Nursing at California State University, Sacramento. She received her Doctor of Education from St. Mary's College and Master of Science in Nursing at CSUS, focusing on trauma-informed care with an emphasis on building resilience and post-traumatic growth. She developed the word metahabilitation to describe a more optimistic and productive outcome in the aftermath of trauma, and her research provided a strength-based clinical pathway guiding individuals towards post-traumatic growth. Her postdoctoral research focused on how traumatic experiences also build resilience and bring forth post-traumatic growth in secondary and vicarious trauma survivors, as well as communities. Along with the course she created at CSUS, Traumatology, an Introduction to Post-Traumatic Growth, she continues to research, lecture, and directly apply metahabilitation in a variety of rehabilitation and recovery settings. Her second book on the subject, Anatomy of a Survivor, Building Resilience, Grit, and Growth After Trauma, was released in April 2021. Today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast, I am talking to Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I actually am doing great, yes. Thanks so much for, for joining us today on the podcast. What are you rebelling against? First of all, I thought about that a lot because I love the title of your podcast, and that's a great question. What I am rebelling about first from a professional standpoint, because I'm a nurse practitioner, from a clinical standpoint, and then even from a personal standpoint, I'm rebelling against are taking away how strong and resilient we are in the face of adversity and struggles. And from, I say from a clinical point of view, because within my own story, I faced how people tended to shift to the negative in the aftermath of a traumatic situation. So I'm a professor at Sacramento State University, and I also see this with my students, how they are not always being told how great they are, not necessarily as smart, but how they are so, again, resilient and hardy. And then from a personal standpoint, I just see from a community basis, we're just not focused on, we understand bad things happen. I get that. But in the aftermath of that, we have such capacity and ability to not only survive, but thrive. And not in spite of what happened, but as a direct result. And I want that message. So I'm rebelling against this not being our priority message. So this is a, another form of the, I'll say rebellions against limitation in a sense, this one in a very specific manner of the limitations that people might believe that they have, or even be told that they have in the aftermath of an event of some kind, a trauma, something difficult and challenging, because you recognize that actually were capable of some pretty amazing things in the response to that. And that'll lead really naturally into your story, which I, I want to start with to give some background to folks. So tell us about how you came to be interested in this topic and your personal connection to it. So is with a lot of rebels, they start with a personal story. And my personal story started several years ago when I was 35 years old, very healthy. I'm now way older than that. But at the time, I still am very healthy. I'm a marathon runner, triathlete, very active physically, nurse practitioner, already was in the business. And I was at a, a swim meet. My husband and I have three children at that time. Our youngest wasn't quite two. Our oldest, our others were seven and eight. 
And at this championship swim meet, they had a fun adult swim relay race to break up the action. And I have zero memory of any of this. But I was told that he brought my husband and a couple of friends and said, come on, we're going to swim this. And we're going to win this. And I'm going to swim the last leg because I'm the fastest. So that all happened. And I did finish swimming the last leg of the relay. And it finished at the side of the pool that was 13 feet deep. Apparently, I finished. I was asked if I need help out. I said no. And I just sunk to the bottom of the pool. And they realized I wasn't surfacing. So my husband dove into the bottom of the pool, got me to the side. Luckily, since there were a lot of children there, there were a lot of parents there. And a couple of them were ER physicians and a cardiac nurse specialist and so I received oh, a little over 20 minutes of CPR at poolside. Helicopter was landed in close to this pool, and I was life flighted to University of California Davis Medical Center. Uh, I was on a respirator for a while. I have just no memory of any of this, so I'm just working off of what people told me. But when I did get off the respirator, when I did go to a step-down unit, when I did come around, the thing that was really more depressing than anything was when I would ask physicians, when will I be able to run again? And I was told, you'll never run anymore. Well, when will I swim again? Well, you won't swim anymore. Well, when can I go back? Well, we don't know. And everything was so negative. And I remember saying to this one cardiologist, I saw him in the hallway of the hospital I was in, because now I was like a little bit more with it. And I said to him, you need to stop doing this to me. I am living what I can't do. I'm well aware that I'm messed up. I get that. But you need to tell me what I can do. You need to ask me what I want to do. And your job is to get me there. And I didn't, you know, and I turned around to go back to my room and turned to the nurse and said, where's my room? Where's my, I couldn't find my room. And the doctor said, look at, she's yelling at me. She doesn't even know where her room is. And I didn't realize it was really at that point in time that I recognized we can't do this with people anymore. And then also when I was definitely coming back and I was trying to get back into life and I was just struggling because I had quite a bit of brain damage from the extended CPR. I had some significant cognitive delays. I had aphasia. So I could speak, but I couldn't grasp words. And it was just really bad when I came home probably I was in the hospital for about a month. And when I came home, I remember standing in my kitchen and asking my children, where were the dishes? What did I cook? Took them into my bedroom and said to my closet, what did I used to wear? That type of thing. So this whole experience of coming back and nobody really sitting me down saying, okay, tough stuff here, right? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with this, and we're going to start with that, and we're going to start with that, and move you forward. I literally had to just come out of myself and start organizing a lot of my own rehab on my own. So there was like no comprehensive plan, or no one sitting with you to discuss. Here's how this typically goes. And that, and the scary thing to me was, I'm in the business, right? I'm a nurse practitioner. You think the people around me. I was sent to what was called speech therapy, but more for cognitive training. But I got really frustrated with them because they wanted me to heat some water in a microwave. And I was like, I'm not going to do that, but I couldn't do it. And they said, well, let me see you do it. And I could, so I basically, you know, fired those people, which was not the best thing to do. But nobody ever mentioned to me TBI. Nobody said traumatic brain injury ever. I knew I was not right in the head, as they would say. I knew that, but I wasn't sure what that was all about. And one of the doctors who resuscitated me, I happened to see him like a month later, whatever. And he said, hey, how are you doing? And I said, you know, Bruce, physically, I'm exhausted. I was exhausted, but I feel like I'm trying to get back. But I said, Bruce, I think I have pretty significant brain damage. And he chuckled and he said, you know, I've never done that much resuscitation to anybody who actually, A, survived, and B, standing here and talking to me. And he said, you are an athlete. And when you have an athletic injury, you have to rehab that injury. He said, you're going to have to go rehab your brain. 
And as soon as he said that, I went, oh, yes, I have to rehab my brain. So what I did was I went back to that speech therapy group and said, I think I need you. And they came back and started working on me cognitively. I had graduated and got my nurse practitioner certificate through UC Davis, University of California, Davis. So I knew those faculty there. And I went back and said, can I sit in class? Can I just sit in class again and listen? And then uh, my husband helped me find a cardiologist who's a runner. And he said, here's what we're going to do. You're not going to run right now, but you're going to start with cardiac rehab. We're going to hook you up. You're going to start walk. And that just got me moving. That didn't fix everything. I still had a lot to overcome. But that put me on a trajectory where I was getting some traction and moving forward. I think a lot of people faced with what you were faced with, I'm only imagining, but it, it feels like this such a big challenge, right? You've had this really severe injury, significant brain damage from the hospital. And I think some people would feel kind of maybe hopeless or helpless or be, you know, inclined to, to believe whatever the, the doctors told them. But you clearly you're like, okay, I want to go in and do these things. And I want to, I want to move forward from this. But I'm curious in the early days, as you were in the hospital and starting the recovery, were there moments where you were kind of uncertain about how this was going to go or where you were feeling some self-doubt or things? Or talk about that and how you got to where you had this more focused, what sounds like determination to say, all right, I'm going to get things back here. I'm going to run again. I'm going to get my life back on track. You know, there's a lot of tough, dark times. Like I, it just, I actually had my 31st anniversary of this in July 22nd. So I'm kind of, I still kind of emotional whenever I go back to that place. But for me, I think the way, just the kind of person I am, it's like, no, this is not going to take away from me. However, you do realize in those quiet moments, especially at nighttime when you're going to bed, you just recognize I'm messed up and I don't know how, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. This is, I've been through some tough stuff in my life, but this is bigger than anything I have faced before. And so I think for me, some of that determination is just anger. And sometimes you need a little anger, just that gives you a little bit of energy and a little bit of that fear energizes you to do things. But one of the things that I have learned personally, and I talk about this a lot through the research that I've done, you really do need to surround yourself with people who are focused on you moving forward. How that's going to look, where that's going to go, the exact end game there, you're not sure. And you don't want to be foolish in your optimism. You want to be real. But there's a whole lot you can do. And that's the focus like, okay, we don't know if you're going to be able to do this. We, we're just not sure. But what we do know is you can go to cardiac rehab and you can start walking on a treadmill and you can start feeling better about that. And you can start seeing how your heart works and all that. What we do know, it, you know, that's the thing to me that I want to rebel against in terms of the way we deal with major, even minor challenges and struggles. We think these are like endpoints. No, they're beginning points to a new realization. There's a whole song about that, that this isn't an end point. This is a beginning point to a new life. And the thing that I am so rebellious about is we get to choose. You should be able to choose what that life's going to look like for you. And that will happen over time. That does not happen overnight. That happens over time. But you need to strategize around that. And the first thing is you got to put the right people around you. Your support system, right, is such a critical thing. And I want to return to that in just a moment. What I want to touch on first, though, is this idea of what I'm hearing is a focus, maybe from the doctors and such, on outcome, and in this case, on limited outcome, right? Well, you're not going to be able to do that, or you're not going to do that. But what you're talking about in the recovery, I'm noticing, is coming more from a place of where you are and how you move forward from there. 
not necessarily an awareness that like where it'll end up, but a I'm here. What's the next step or how do I push this forward? And just to focus on that path and not maybe even worrying about, you might have a goal for where you want it to go, but not being caught up in where it can and can't go more just seeing how do I take it further than I have right now. Thank you. That is such a great point. One of the other things I do want to say is I think when I've had deep discussions with physicians about the way this was handled, for them too, they're always afraid they're going to be more optimistic about an outcome if you don't reach that, or they're never really sure, or they don't always see people that come out of it. So there's a fear factor with them. And I understand that, but I've always said too, but this is not your journey. So when you talk about this, such a great point because as you're going through this process, the beginning of it is just a you got to get alive, <laughs> you got to stay alive, and you got to just start moving forward. So, you're exactly right. At the end, I wasn't thinking, Oh, when am I going to run that marathon again? I needed to get some traction and moving forward and taking one step at a time. But I could not do that with people continually telling me what's wrong instead of what's right. Or how to take next steps. Yes. So let's talk about for you and in your journey, the building of your support system, of your team, as it were. How did you go about identifying, finding, incorporating these the system into your recovery process? Let me just say a lot of times with my situation, obviously people were afraid that it was going to happen again. So like my husband, for example, he really wanted me to do move forward, but he was afraid. What if this happens again, as were some other people. So as I was pulling together this team, I relied on people around me who I'd already known who knew what I wanted to do in moving forward. So obviously started with my husband and then friends of mine, professional friends of mine. One of my biggest supporter was Dan Fields, Dr. Dan Fields. And he and I were in co-practice together. He's a family practice physician and I'm family practice NP. And we were such close friends. And he was the one too that was really helping me move forward and saying things like, we need to go see a therapist. And then he would bring in other people who he thought would be helpful for me. And then also having um, the guts to say to people, yeah, I can't be around you for now. I I can't have you around me right now because I'm already trying to get things together and can't do that. So it starts with people close to you and then they bridge out and bring in other critical people. Coming back to the, to the concern of your husband and I'm sure others of this happening again to you, so did they ever determine what actually it was that occurred for you medically that caused the event in the first place? No. And so I had obviously a ton of tests. I had checking the electrical workings of my heart. When did I have an infection at that time? What was going on? And nobody clearly determined locally what was happening. The cardiologist who has become my friend, who's a runner, he said, there's this cardiologist around Stanford and his name is Roger Winkle. And he's the guru of electrophysiology aspects of the heart. And I want to go see him. So a big story about how I finally got to go see him. He was amazing. And I brought all my tests to him. He examined me and he said, okay, first of all, I'm going to tell you a few things. You're the luckiest person I've ever met. I have never met anybody who had that much CPR and is alive and sitting up and talking. And he said, and second of all, your life has changed forever. Your life will never be the same. And you get to choose how to live that life. And if you want to choose to run and do things and that's how you die, then that is your choice. He wasn't being facetious and icky about it. He just, that's a choice. He said, but I think there's other ways to go about this. And then I said, do you know what happened? And he said, I think unless somebody was in your heart at that moment, we will never know what happened to you. But again, you have to make choices about it. And so I said, okay, how about I 
finish up cardiac rehab? How about I run with a heart rate monitor? How about I don't push myself? How about, and we started going with this, which that makes sense. And, you know, when we were driving home, because it was about a two or three hour drive to get there, I just said to my husband, I don't know, I just feel so good. He didn't tell me what happened to me, so I don't know, but just somebody giving you permission to make the choices. All of a sudden, I didn't need to push it like I thought I needed to because I wasn't like going up against somebody. He said, yeah, do that, but maybe do it this way. Yeah, you can do that, but maybe do it this way. And I found out later, and I talk about this a lot in my book, the notion of people having control over their situation is huge. So huge, right? A lot of of the fear comes from the fact that people are not allowing you to have control. At a time in which things already probably feel very out of control in a sense because of all of the changes that has happened. And what I'm hearing here is what he did for you is really did say, I'm not in control here. You are. I'm here as an advisor. I'm here as a knowledgeable resource to help you explore these choices so that you can make the choices that fit you. And I can see how you would experience that as very freeing and empowering. When I did go back and start seeing patients again, because I did, I went back, it took me a while, but I did go back. I did a lot of therapy in terms of cognitive therapy and all that kind of stuff. I did go back seeing patients. It absolutely changed the way I saw patients because I recognized that I was a participant in their healing process and that my role was as a knowledgeable collaborator. And when I started interfacing with patients on that level, I found some really interesting things happening. Number one, I would have patients say, ah, nobody's ever talked to me quite like this before. And I said, but it's your life. I can tell you to do all this stuff, but if it doesn't coexist with what you want to do, it's not going to work. And the other thing I found, I was so much less fatigued after seeing patients. I I, I would just like finish up my day and I could see like 20 or 30 patients. And usually it was just like wrung out. And after changing the way I interfaced and entered the healing process with them, I was way more relaxed. I think I did a better job and I just wasn't as exhausted. To me, that makes perfect sense because you weren't having to spend all that energy in an oppositional sort of interaction as you might have or trying to push. It's much more about trying to align with and be in parallel with your patients so you can support them in moving forward. And that still allows you to be an influence, but in a way that's so much more energy efficient. I I liken it very much to the Japanese martial art of Aikido, which is designed exactly in that context of blending with your attacker's energy, which makes it much, much easier for you to be able to control, pin them, do whatever you need to do. It's a super smart and powerful concept that we can apply in any number of different ways. And it sounds like that's what happened to you and your work. And you saw how much that worked better on multiple levels. Now, how long from when the incident occurred to you resuming practicing as a nurse, how long was that recovery? That was probably about six, six months or so. The ability to do that landed straight on my friend Dan Fields because he helped me come back, but he would see every single patient after I did and just collaborated with me after and just making sure that everything was fine. We started out with easy stuff, easy patient situations, all that. And that really made a difference. And I have to say, I I just, I just don't know where where I would have gone without him helping like that. So you really had him there to help assess and make sure everything was going okay, to be a checkpoint, a little bit of, of a guardrail for you, in effect, it sounds like. Oh, yes. I remember one night I was driving home and it was, I just was thinking, wow, this is so hard. This is so hard. Everything that used to be so easy for me, it seems like such a struggle. And I just don't think I can do this anymore. I can't do this. 
if I just drove my car into that embankment and be over and I went and then just boom, all of a sudden this little voice in my head was just like, hey, a lot of people work to get you back. We can't end it now. And it was at that very moment that I really thought, okay, I have no idea how I'm going to pull all this off, but I am making the critical decision. I'm going to live and I'm going to move forward. And that's, again, a game changer. And when I talk to other survivors, they can almost tell you the point in time where that decision to live and the decision to, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to take this challenge on and I'm going to do it. They remember that point in time. I've heard other stories from folks and there often seems to be that kind of pivot point where there's this real just turning inward and going, okay, am I in or out here? What am I doing? What's it, what's it going to be? And so you decided you're in, in part because this support system who had been so helpful with you, you also felt a certain sense of responsibility too. So it's an interesting note about the power of community on and support on a couple of levels, huh? Yes, for sure. Because, you know, I had a husband, I had three children. I was like, they already went through a bunch, you know, I need to come back for them to begin with. And then also I had other friends and relatives and yeah, you know, you really do realize this isn't about me. People also need to see how you're going to pull this off because it's going to mean something. It's a sense of responsibility, right? And I could see that both being a thing that could push you forward in a good way, but I could also see it as a thing that could weigh you down at times. I'm wondering how that was for you emotionally along the way. So before this all happened, I'm super, very competitive person. And so when I would go out, I would say this kind of close to the elite recreation level. Of, you know, I was really trained a lot. I like to win in my, at least in my age group, I like to run really fast. And, but I do remember, this is so funny, when I came back and I started running again, it's like, well, I'm not winning anymore because, well, I can't, I mean, look at what happened to me. I mean, I can't do that anymore. And so it was kind of like emotionally an out for me where I could just really enjoy running and not hold this high level of accountability where, boy, why aren't you in your age group? Why aren't you in that? So I remember having that feeling like, well, this is a good out in a way because I don't have to do that. And I, with the other types of responsibilities with children and making sure that happened, I don't remember that being particularly, that it was just like a motivator for me that, again, as a mother, I wanted to model that behavior. And um, yeah. When did you decide to take this to be something bigger and to see that there was something bigger that could and maybe even should be done with what you had learned and experienced in your recovery? So it evolved over time. This has been over several years, but I think I understood it in myself first, like I saw it in myself. This is what people can do. This is the capacity, the ability we have. And then when I went back to seeing patients, I would just, I recognize it in my patients. I would ask them their story and I would hear these amazing stories or I'd see it in a book or I'd watch it in a movie. And I went, gosh, this is like an amazing aspect of human behavior. Why aren't we focused on this? So it just kept with me and I kept thinking it through. And then I decided to, if I really wanted to get my brain back, I'll go back and get an advanced degree. So I went back, I'll go get my master's. That's it. I'll go get my master's. So I went to uh, study to get a master's degree in nursing. And I decided to study people who had survived death events. And I wanted to know if they had gone through the anxiety, the depression, the grief, all that and come out of it like I had done. My uh, master's work was on that. And I found out through several interviews that I'd done with people that there's a sequence there. They went through some of the same things and some of the same things that helped them had helped me. And you could see that pattern. I started seeing patterns. So then I decided to, funny thing, I 
went back to teaching. I actually taught at UC Davis and was seeing patients and I was working full time and getting myself into a little bit of pushing it too much. And one day I just came home and I saw my children. I had this little message that said, you weren't resuscitated to work more. So I decided to listen to that because I listened to those messages I get. And I just sat down with my husband and I just said, we got to raise these kids and I, we can't both be working full time like this. So you're going to work full time. I'm going to work part time. And so I did that. And so what that did was it gave me a lot of thinking time and processing time and time to heal and all sorts of stuff. So then when our children got older and were going to college, I was just so fascinated by this aspect of human behavior. I kept seeing over and over again. I decided I really want to study this in earnest. So I might as well attach a degree to it. So I went back to get my doctorate. So I was I, I didn't go back to get my doctorate until I was like 48 years old. So I was older when I went for that. And then I wanted to study people who had gone through extreme events and had not only survived, but thrived as a result of them. So I had created, prior to this, I had created the word metahabilitation because I never liked talking about rehab and recovery. I thought it was too small. So through working around with some colleagues of mine, we pitched around a bunch of things and somebody came up with meta, meaning to go above and beyond. I said, that's it. Habilitation, restoration going above and beyond restoration. So the word was created. And then the philosophy around that, moving above and beyond. Then my doctoral work really brought forth the how-to. How do you do that? So I interviewed several people who had accomplished what I had identified as metahabilitating. And I just listened to their interviews over and over again, how they grew up, what happened to them, whatever. And I just thought, wow, there's a system here. They didn't do this in a haphazard way. So in discussing with one of my colleagues, she said, there's stages to this, aren't there? There are stages people go through. So that's how it all came through. So it started as a word, went to philosophy, then actually has come about as a clinical pathway, a strength-based pathway to not overnight, but over time, move forward in a productive way in the aftermath of bad stuff. So your continued interest and curiosity about what's happened with this, why does this happen, what have other people experienced and all of that has led to this really seeing and recognizing this, that there is a system, a process here of how this works, which you've then gone and really articulated in a more structured form. Yeah. So it's a MetaHab system and I've actually used it in a variety of different ways. I've with veterans programs, with addiction dependency programs. I will be starting some programming that I'll be doing with women who have suffered violence and sex trafficking. I've used it with athletes who are injured or I mean just I'm a generalist in trauma. So I work with a variety of different trauma situations. I do training for clinicians to incorporate this into their existing programming. And yeah, it just is, I I created a course at uh, Sacramento State University called Traumatology, an introduction to post-traumatic growth to bring this about. So yeah, it's really just, I'm trying to get it out. And what was the point at which you decided that you wanted to write a book and put this into book form? I I wrote a book initially when I finished my dissertation. My first book, that's in 2007 when I finished it up. So my first book was called Turning Tragedy into Triumph, uh, Metahabilitation, a Contemporary Model of Rehab. So I worked with that and then I developed workbooks and things around it. And that took some traction and energy. And then COVID came around and basically things were slowing down because of COVID. And I just was like, I need a win. I need a win. I need something to go. I need, and I called a friend. And this is another thing I want always to remember that it is really important when you're going through tough stuff to ask for and accept help. So I was going through some tough times about just, I just getting this out. And so I had a friend 
we wrote a book. And I emailed him and I said, hey, Damon, I, I need a break. Can you introduce me to your publisher? So he emails me back. Yeah, here's your name and everything. And I called him and I said, Damon, I don't need a name. I need you to introduce me to that person. You need to open that door. So he did. It was awesome. And I had an idea and I had my children who are now adults look everything over the pitch for what we're going to do. I pitched it and I got a book deal a year ago in April. And that's the good news. And I never say good news or bad news. I always say good news and challenging news. So the good news was I got a book deal. The challenging news was, yeah, we need it by September. But in all honesty, COVID was around. If I was ever going to write a book in four months, that was the time. And researchers that I had used their work, I would just, I thought, what the heck, I'll call them. And they called me back. And everybody I reached out to and loved the project, went through chapters with me, helped me organize my thinking around all this. So it was like, this was there. It just needed to get on paper. So I wasn't doing any original research. It was all there. So it was really about taking all of these things and having this opportunity that was provided, one of the upsides for you of, of COVID and the pandemic to take and put it together and structure it and format it into a book, which came out this past April, correct? Yeah. And the name of the book is called Anatomy of a Survivor, Building Resilience, Grit, and Growth After Trauma. And there's just a ton of stuff I'm super proud of. But one of the things I'm very proud of is the intro was written by Dave McGillivray, who is the director of the Boston Marathon who I met, crazy story how I met him, but we met a couple of months after the bombing had occurred. Because I'm a runner, he's a runner. He knew, it was just a crazy way we met. And he's an awesome guy. And since that time, we've just become friends. And so I called him and I said, hey, Dave, I need a forward written. Will you, will you write for me? Absolutely. So he wrote the foreword. And then the other part of the book that I absolutely love is I have been thinking through this for many years. And the very important part of me is I had to recognize why taking on bad stuff and organizing a strategy, a productive strength-based strategy around it, why that works even at the cellular level. I wanted to know what that does to the cell. And I was able through my own research and that of others to figure it out. So the book not only talks about metahabilitation and how to move through that system, but there's chapters that go over the neurobiology of this post-traumatic growth, the genetics of post-traumatic growth and how that's built, the social aspect of this, the, the science of it is there. I really wanted the science to be there. And it's pretty clear that not only do we do this, we can do this. And we do this all the time. So let's talk about the process of recovery and to rebuilding and really getting to a higher level. Let's go through what are the different phases or steps of that so people understand what it looks like and, and how it occurs. What I've developed is a model to apply this clinically. So the model is the metahabilitation model. And with that are facilitating conditions and characteristics. So you always go at people first. I have a list of those. And they get to check off what they have. And it's so funny because a lot of them go, you want me to check off what I don't have? I go, no. What am I going to do with that? Can't do with that. You need to check off what you have. So we start it. And then there are six stages to this system. And the first stage, the acute recovery phase. That is clearly, it is what it is. You got to get it together. You got to stay alive. You got to get alive. You got to start. That's the process. That's all we're focused on. Don't look into the future. Just make sure you get to the next day. Then stage two is what I call the turning point. And that is what I reflected on my own, where I had to make that choice. 
critical choice. I have no idea exactly how I'm going to pull this off, but I'm going to make the commitment to pull this off. And once you do that, you go into what I call the third stage, which is focus on treatments. And that's both traditional and complementary. And that's where people around you are so helpful because they can help find different things that, hey, I just found this one therapist. I found this physical therapist who does this. I found this treatment protocol. I found, and everybody comes together. And it's a very busy, active time. Just trying to, you're getting strategies, you're moving forward. And then I go to stage four, which I call acceptance and adaptation. And that's the stage where you like, chill. Like you got to just take a little time and go, what just happened? Where am I at? What is the meaning of this? You accept and you adapt for now. Doesn't mean you're always going to stay there, but just you got to just take a breather and just make sense of these months or whatever you've gone through. And then stage five, I call return to life. You got to get into life somehow. That many times is not what you left. It could be something different. And that is one thing that I see a lot with people when they get so panicked about that door closing. And yet, after they've gone through all this and figured out, they let this other very interesting door became available to me that I would never have considered had that door shut. And so they go through that and they get it back into life, volunteering, whatever they need to do. And then say six is never ending. That's post-traumatic growth. That's meta-hack. That's when you really take on and you go, wow, I didn't want this to happen, but in a weird way, I learned a lot. It showed me a lot. I saw way more about what I was capable of than I ever saw before. The big thing I always say to people is keep these stages in mind because sometimes you try new things or other things happen and you slide back. But you will never slide back to that despair, absolute despair and depression you were at before because now you know, okay, I, I got it, this going. This is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. So it's a real how do you move forward. My initial research was with individuals. I did some postdoctoral research, a sabbatical on vicarious and secondary trauma. And they actually can go. So whether it was like what my husband and children went through, what first responders, what people who are around people who are traumatized, what they go through, and they actually can experience post-traumatic growth as well. And then you look at communities and you see there's this pattern that they can go through. Pretty obvious. And, and as you look through it. That's fascinating for one. And, and two, obviously has a lot of really powerful implications and applications thinking about any anyone who works as a care provider, right? And, and who, uh, especially the folks we look at like, yeah, mental health professionals or people who really are working directly with trauma victims, ER physicians is another population who I, I am thinking of who can be really affected by their work. And so it seems like it's got some real promise for them. Do you see this as something that has application on a more kind of broad societal level as we go forward into whatever the future holds for us as a society? hundred percent, just 100%. I see how this goes. And again, like I said, sometimes you make that traction and then things happen and you slide back. But once you recognize capacities, we have immune systems, we have cardiovascular systems, we have all these systems in us that are built, not only we are surviving machines, so we are built to do that. So you engage with those. That's a big word. One of the things that's super important if you want to move forward, if you want to experience post-traumatic growth, it is the direct engagement in the process. Not going back and just focusing on what's bad, but engagement in the process of moving forward. Tell me a little bit more about like, let's maybe get specific. Let's like look at say they're, you know, a person as they're thinking about how their life has been limited, restricted, affected over the last year by COVID. And they're looking at, okay, how do I go forward? Because certainly we can look at this as truly something that has been traumatic to people and been experienced as that. What for them might that look like going forward and, and onward? 
So one of the things I always say to people is as a clinician, as a nurse practitioner, when people come and see me, you ask a bunch of questions, right? The first thing you ask is your past medical history. What's going on? What about your family history? I ask about their trauma history in that, what have you been through before? What have you identified that has been either a struggle, challenge, or a trauma that you've been through before and gotten through? And it really throws them off because people are like, not used to like, well, what do you mean? I go, no, you've been through some stuff. How did you get through that? And then they start thinking about, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's right. I can move through. Okay, let's start with that now. So, you know, you've been through bad stuff and you came through and this is what you did, not what I did. This is what you did to get through that. So let's look at what we're at now. So I'm not a fool. I know this is bad and it's been traumatic and troubling. So we get that. We all agree on that. What we can do is we have to focus on what can you control in this. Some of your control is attitude. So even though this has been troubling and bad and some people have been hit harder than others, is there anything that you can think about that enhanced you? Situations in your family, relationships that changed, spiritual change, stuff like that. And so, yes, you have people focus on that. And then you go, okay, how are you going to decide to move forward? Because if you are deciding to move forward, how do you want to do that? Here's some ideas from other people. Here's some ideas from what you've done in the past. And I want you to focus on what you can do. And also, not now, but in the future, you will be able to start to reflect a little bit on the meaning of this. And that's when you start to come full circle. The meaning, what did this bring? But there's all sorts of things that happen. And you can see these situations can bring out the best in us on a cellular level, on an emotional level, on a societal level. And that's the focus. You know, historically, even when things happen to me, I go, I'm not the only one who came up with this idea. This has been going on forever. I didn't come up with the idea to go through bad stuff and get better. All I came up with was awareness, language, and a process to engage and incorporate into your life to make that outcome. Where in this is the step or is there a step of I'll say working through or experiencing the the emotions, losses, and those pieces of the experience, right? Whether it's for somebody who has dealt with whatever losses they've had as a result of the pandemic or someone who goes through a trauma and loses some something as a result of that. Because you you could we don't want them to live there, but at the same time, it's easy. And we saw this early in COVID where people were like so focused on, oh, it's a great opportunity to learn a new language or, oh, it's a great chance to do this. And it really felt very dismissive to some people of some of the very real practical challenges. I had to figure out suddenly it's like I had to to make my business virtual almost overnight and figure out how I was going to support my daughter in distance learning. And it was all fine, but there was a bunch of shifts I had to make. And the idea of, oh, cool, now you can learn a language is like, yeah, right. And that can feel very minimizing. So where's the, the balance is what I'm getting at of experiencing the really normal, difficult, negative feelings that come with this and not letting those become all-consuming so that you can move beyond them without denying them. And that's an important point because I always tell people, this is not something that you're going to get over. We don't get over this stuff, but we find ways to use these experiences as a growth experience. So let's all be honest about that. And then I will also say to people, I would like to take away the depression and the grief that you're experiencing as a result of this, but I cannot. But I want you to recognize that this is a part of the process. This is a part of it. You lost, things changed. You couldn't control some things. So this is a part of the process. But as I always say, I need you to get help to go through this, but I cannot leave you here. We now need to pick you up and move forward. So when you're looking at the stages, I see those all as a part of, especially people are making the decision to move forward, but especially stage three, you're really focusing on how am I getting through this? And like you said, 
the negative and the, all that kind of stuff and getting some help, having people talking to a therapist, doing whatever you need to do. And then I, so I see stage three with that. And then stage four is the adaptation and adjustment. Like you had to shift, you had to say, okay, I got to adapt and adjust. I got to do this, whatever. So you see those in those stages and those stages, I always tell people they're messy. They're scary. They're not always, you know, recognize that it is part of the process and focus on what is supporting you and going and supporting others going through those stages. The word that comes up for me is integration, integration, both of the losses and the negative experiences, but of the opportunities that are still contained in there where it's not an either or. And Thank you for highlighting the fact that this is messy. I think that's one of the things that so often gets left out of this and it frustrates me to no end because if you look at these descriptions that people put or these stories, they so often leave that element out and it gives this really horribly false impression when the reality is growth and change is messy and clumsy and indirect. It's not necessarily pretty or fun, but it is part of the deal. And so when people understand that, I think it's easier for them to keep pushing through it. You know, I use the story about how bones heal or even let's have people like think about this. We'll do something like, let's say you have a laceration, right? Let's say you have a cut in your skin. Looks bad. Well, then it looks worse after that. I mean, first it looks worse. It can get a little irritated, infected. It's all this stuff and it can get, you know, bleeding and irritating. It just looks bad. And then you do what you need to do. You clean it. You do this. You put sutures in. You put butterfly, whatever you want to do to clean it together. It just looks bad for a while. But then as time goes on, because you cleaned it, you dealt with it, you put the right things on it, it gets better. And that's the thing. Bones do the same thing. When you see a fractured bone, it looks bad. You do an x-ray a couple of, it looks worse. Why? Because inflammation and swelling and all this. And I just, that's one of the first things I looked at when I was thinking about the process. I go, see, the healing process is not necessarily pretty, but it is part of the process. So that scary, messy inflammation, swelling, all that, it's part of the process. And you need to attend to that. And you don't want to look oh, I'm going to make sure this is what it's going to look like a year from now. No, this is what I need to do to get it together and work with it to get past some messy, scary, frightening stuff. This strikes me as another place where support system is so valuable and important, having people who can really help you recognize that, yeah, it's messy and ugly and difficult, and you're right where you're supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to look. Nothing's wrong. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't look great, but you're right on track. When I talk to clinicians too about their roles at certain times, and I always say, so my son-in-law is an emergency room physician. And years ago, when I would talk to him about this, he said, I wish in medical school, somebody would have talked to us like you are. Because he said, I see people in the ER and I'm like, oh my gosh, who knows? He goes, but what I can see with what you're talking about is this process. And as an ER physician, I just got to get my role and then I pass it on to the next person and they get their role. They don't have to do the whole thing. You just get really good at your role and then you pass it on to the next person who does their role. And the other thing I always like to tell, especially... When I teach my course at Sachs, I go, you know, you should be so good at your job because you're passing people's life off to them. And they could say, I saw this nurse practitioner, can't remember her name at all, can't remember, but she taught me this, or now I know this. I said, you should be an afterthought in terms of your name. What you need to do is be really good at your role in that recovery process. What else do you think that as we're moving forward into whatever stage of this pandemic we want to call it, but as we go forward, what are the things that you think people would best be focused on thinking about doing in order to be engaging in reentry and moving forward and taking and building on this trauma that we've all been through here um, over this time? 
one of the things I've been giving a lot of thought about is, you know, because things have shifted, right? Immunizations to me are key, key, key. There's no getting around it. Immunizations. And then, you know, I know people are complaining that we had masks and didn't have masks and other that. But, you know, we don't know a lot. We have to learn a lot. So things shift and go through. And I think for us as a society, as a community, our biggest focus is on what can we do not only to keep ourselves safe, but our community safe. And if you have to shift and rechange things and now you have to wear a mask or why you need to do that. I was just reflecting on this with one of my kids the other day, one of my children, just remembering, you know, John Kennedy asked not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I think this pandemic has also allowed us to recognize that we must come together and do what we can to not only protect ourselves and our family, but our communities. So that's a cool thing because you can control certain things that you can do around that. The other thing too is I think one of the biggest challenges is this reentry phase because there are some moving parts to this, right? We had it, we did, now we're going back. But again, this is because there's shifts in how this virus works and the Delta and mutations and all this. As we're going back into the reentry, do it safely, get back into work as much or school or whatever you're doing to the best of your ability and realize we're still in stage like four or five, right? We're still in stages. We're coming back in and recognizing the best, safest way to reenter. And just like anybody else who's been through trauma, more than likely, you are not going to be working the same way or in your family the same way as you did before. It is going to look and be different, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's a different thing. And these events give us this opportunity to re-enter into life and say, maybe I don't need to do it like this, or I can do it like this, or this did teach me something, or I do want to get back into that. So this is a big challenge. The re-entry is a big challenge. What are the things you think people can do to help them think about the opportunity piece of this? Because there are opportunity aspects to this going forward, but people may not necessarily go there automatically or naturally. So what would help people to get in that mindset and explore that aspect of things, do you think? There's this great book that I love by Atul Gawande called Better. And he talks about being a positive deviant. And one of the things he talks about in terms of being a positive deviant is not getting into negative talk. Because where does that go? We're in the process of starting to find meaning in this and starting to understand what are some of the gifts that have arrived as a result of that and having conversations not with not only within yourself but with others in that direction i think that's powerful on multiple levels not only for being able to share insights and explore them or get a different perspective on them but also from the standpoint of starting to work on really the idea of rebuilding and reconnecting community, which is something I think that's really so important. Now for you, what's next on on the path for you? Uh, any any marathons coming up, more books? What's coming up down the road for you? That's funny. I was just talking to my daughter today. We were out for a run and I said, ah, one of my favorite runs is this run in Petaluma's half marathon and we're not going to have it this year. So is there another run around I can do? Yeah, I'd like to pick up another run to do just because it keeps me motivated, keeps me going. But on a professional level, things shifted for me because I'm consulting and programming and doing all that. But what I am seeing that I am doing a lot of now and would love to talk to anybody who needs my help in this is getting this re-entry, getting your employees back to work and how that's going to come about in a productive supportive, positive growth enhancing. And I love working with people in that way. So I'm doing some programming with organizations and companies around that now. And again, always trying to reestablish and use MetaHab with clinicians, organizations. Again, 
dealing with people who've gone through traumatic situations. So I'm really focused on that. So there's really a lot of different places that you're trying to bring this message and this process to because of how much you see it can be really broadly applied in a lot of different environments and um, really looking to see how you can help companies or individuals, whoever make use of it in taking the opportunity to, to build on what's been happening so that they can go forward more powerfully. And I, as I talk to presidents of organizations and all these people, I go, let me help you help the people you serve. And those employees then serve other people. But the focus I will take is moving forward, using our past strengths and capacities and focusing on our abilities not only to get through this, but over time, master their fate. And it really helps to take the stress off of some of this and saying, you know, and how do you want to control this? And how do you want to do this? And how can you move people through? So I always like to talk to people and say, when you work with me, my absolutely expressed intent is to over time have people come out of this and say, didn't want to do this, but in a weird way, I learned a lot and I figured out a lot more about myself in this process. And I grew. For you, as you're going forward with this and you know, really applying this in such a, so many different places in such a broad way, what do you see as the biggest challenges or obstacles for you on your journey going forward? I think like anything else, just getting to people who could use what I have, making sure my message gets out there and gets forward. And I can work with people who can use and need what I have. I think that's the biggest thing, engaging. How do I find and engage with people who can use that? And so it's always a challenge, as you know, you're trying to get out there and, you know, let people know, here's what I have. And I'd like to share this with you and work with you and your teams on this. And so just getting it out there. So I really appreciate you having me as a guest to get this message out that this is what I do. I think it's such a powerful message and such a powerful idea that these traumatic experiences that people have, that there is an opportunity in there as well, that recovery is possible and really going even beyond recovery. That idea is such a powerful one, both in really removing some of, I think, the pain and damage of these traumatic events, but also in just really highlighting the possibility and capability that is truly contained within human beings, which any of us who work in the world of growth, healing, recovery, or anything like that, we all have had the experience of seeing and witnessing some of these stories. And so this is a way for you to be able to, I think, share this in a, in a more broad and more structured form that I think has some really powerful application. Thank you. It is, very, it is a very structured form in how I present this. But I really appreciate you saying that you've seen this, you know, and how powerful it is. And that is such a motivation for me when I talk about this and I bring this forward and having people go, oh, my gosh, I did that. I said, see? I, I, when I teach it at Sac State and I have students, I take them through their own meta-have experience. We do a whole thing. And these students at the end were like literally going, nobody's ever sent this to me. I never understood that, you know, I went through foster care. I went through this and this at all. I went through this with my family or my dad, just a variety of things. And to see they're almost this awakening to how powerful they are. And so I love it. I always say, see, I've taught you nothing. All I did was allow you to see what is already in you. Dorothy already had the red shoes. She just had to go through that to understand that's in her. And I will look at these students and it's so lovely. I'll just go, see, you got this. You got this. And that is the rebel in me because I really think people are not promoting their absolute and amazing strength. It, as you said, it doesn't come without pain. It's messy. It's scary. 
people dig themselves out of ditches. It's all there. That hero's journey is in each of us. And I think that's part of really what our work is in the different ways that we or anybody who is you know, doing healing work, doing growth work, anything of that nature, our job really often is just about helping people see what's there in a clearer and more accurate way. Because often what they're seeing isn't accurate, right? They see a distorted picture or they see they're too narrowly focused or something, and they just don't see the possibility. And in part because they don't understand what the path looks like, they don't know there is a path. They've had people pointing them in the wrong direction or all of these things. And so for me, anybody who is in the business of possibility, which is really what this is about, right? is doing, I think, such important and valuable work. So I'm grateful that you are out there doing your work and bringing it to the world in the ways that you are. And now I know your book is available online and in the various locations books typically are. And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so people can get it that way. But for folks who want to learn more about you and the different sorts of work that you're doing, where is the best place for them to connect with you online at this point? Perfect. So my name is Joyce Michael Flynn. So you can get in touch at Instagram, dr.jmf. Or my, you can go on my website, drjmf.com. Um, and you can look at all, I have all sorts of things on there that you can look at, but those are probably the two main places to get in touch with me. And I encourage people to, to check both the website and the Instagram out, get a view of kind of both sides of you. The Instagram is a great view, a little bit more into the personal part of your world, which is always fun to, to see with people. So Dr. Joyce, I am really grateful for you taking the time to, to come speak with me today. I am very appreciative of the work that you're doing in the world and wish you nothing but the, the best of luck in continuing to carry this work to others and help them in their MetaHab journeys and being able to go on to bigger and better things because one, they're capable of it and that's great. And two, I think uh, we all could use a little, little bit of that. Thank you again, but I just need to also extend my gratitude to this work, this message does not get out without people like you helping me along the way. So I appreciate that. Look forward to talking to you again soon. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can get show notes, information about my coaching services, or just send me a note at sensitiverebel.com. Until next time, keep moving forward.